Let's pray. Our Father, uh, we do thank you for your word, uh, which is wonderful, which is powerful and beautiful, which uh, comforts our souls, which spurs us on uh, in our uh, life before you, uh, which gives us uh, wonderful anticipation of the age to come. So, Father, we pray now that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word. Lord, we uh, know that your word brings glory to you, and we uh, pray that this might be again the case this morning. And we pray that it would also uh, bring great edification to your people. May we give our humble attention to your word, and we pray that we would respond to it as we should with faith and repentance. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Our scripture text uh, this morning is uh, Psalm 119, verses 129 through 144. Uh, I have been kind of slowly preaching through Psalm 119 uh, over the last couple of years, and uh, this is where I am in my own preaching, and so this is uh, what we will consider this morning. It's about... Uh, well, it's quite a ways uh, through uh, this uh, psalm now, two-thirds or three-quarters of the way through. Uh, verses 129 through 144, these are two of the 22 stanzas of this psalm. So, hear now God's word. Psalm 119, beginning in verse 129. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise. Let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant, and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears, because people do not keep your law. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. My zeal consumes me, because my foes forget your words. Your promise is well tried, and your servant loves it. I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is righteous forever, and your law is true. Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live sends our reading of God's Word. Well, psalm 119, uh, sometimes called the long psalm or the great psalm, uh, for rather obvious reasons, uh, is uh, divided into 22 stanzas according to the, uh, the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. It's the single longest chapter in all of Scripture. 
And uh, it is known, best of all, uh, for what it says about God's Word. Uh, it uses uh, a number of different terms uh, to describe God's Word. And in all but a couple of these uh, 176 verses, you find one of these words that describe God's Word. And yet, Psalm 119 isn't only about God's Word, as rich a theme as that is. Uh, the psalmist never identifies himself by name, uh, but here we have some remarkable Old Testament saint who opens to us his heart, who describes his spiritual experience, and we learn a lot about this psalmist if we read through this psalm. Uh, we learn, for one thing, that he was a sojourner. Uh, which meant he was away from home. And that indicates to us he was not living in the land of Israel. Uh, he was not living uh, on that plot of ground that God had given to his ancestors. Uh, God, had, God had threatened when he gave the law of Moses to the people that if they were disobedient, he would eventually he would send them from the land. He would expel them from their land. And it seems that this psalmist has experienced that, whether he is one of the Babylonian exiles or in some other time in Israel's history, he has apparently been sent from the land in God's judgment. And this also makes sense of the fact that this psalmist confesses to having been a great sinner and rebel against God. There was a time when this godly man was not so godly. And that is probably part of the reason why he was expelled from the land. And yet we know that this psalmist has repented and that he is now devoted again to serving the Lord and following his ways. And yet we also learn it through this psalm that this psalmist, he remains, he remains in exile. He remains a sojourner. And so he's surrounded by those who hate his God. He's surrounded by those who who are, are afflicting him, who are persecuting him for his faith. Life is not easy for this psalmist. And as we think about this, it's not surprising why Psalm 119 has been so uh, has spoken to God's people uh, as it has uh, through so many ages. Uh, the New Testament tells us that we are sojourners in this world. Every one of us as Christians, because we are away from our everlasting home, we are sojourners in this world, in some way fundamentally away from where we really belong. We are sinners who have repented and are seeking the Lord's ways, and yet we live surrounded by many people who hate our faith, who hate our God, and who therefore oppose us. In so many ways, uh, our lives are like this psalmist's. And so there is so much uh, to learn, uh, so much to take in as we study this long psalm. In these stanzas uh, before us, uh, the Pei and Sadi stanzas, we see that the psalmist sets before us three, what we might call today, emotions. Three strong emotions or uh, what in older language we might have called passions. 
then these three are longing and sorrow and zeal. Now, as human beings, we are emotional or passionate creatures. Some of us, you might say, more so than others, but it is just to be human is to be an emotional, passionate creature. And it's not, it, it, nothing good or evil in and of itself about having emotions or passions. We can have sinful emotions, but what we strive for, what we pray for as, as Christians is that we would have godly emotions or passions, that we would respond in the right way to the right sorts of things. And that is part of being holy people before the Lord. And the psalmist sets before us three very different uh, but prominent, important emotions or passions that we experience uh, as human beings and that we strive to experience in the right way as Christians. These stanzas remind us that Scripture and the God who wrote and stands behind these scriptures. They are wonderful. They are gracious. And they are righteous. And these things should not and cannot leave us unmoved. So we look first at verses 129 through 131. Just the first three verses, which set before us the first of these uh, emotional or passionate responses. The psalmist begins uh, here in verse 129 by saying, Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. Now, uh, this word wonderful is that's obviously a term that we're all familiar with and we've all used and heard many times, and yet uh, we... We often use this term in a way that makes it much more mundane than it really is. All right? we, use, we throw out the word wonderful far too often. Right? We have dinner at someone's home and we say, oh, that, that meal was wonderful as we're leaving the house. And what we mean was, oh, that was adequate, thank you, appreciate it. All right? But actually, the term that the psalmist is using here isn't subject to that sort of, that sort of uh, uh, small compliment. The psalmist is saying, Lord, your, your word, your testimonies, they are full of wonders. It is a term that the scriptures ordinarily use for God and his works. As Psalm 72, verse 18 puts it, the Lord alone does wonders. He led his people out of Egypt, through the Red Sea on dry ground. He made the walls of Jericho fall. He raised his son from the dead. The Lord alone does wonders. And if the Lord does wonders, and the Lord himself is wonderful, then his word, his word which reveals God to us, which reveals these mighty works to us, his word itself is wonderful. And we can hardly be, we can hardly be indifferent observers and readers and hearers of God's word. The psalmist, in saying your testimonies are wonderful, immediately says, therefore my soul keeps them. 
What other response could there be to the wonders of God's word? And then in verse 130, the next verse, the psalmist says, The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Uh, this word that the psalmist uses, which is translated here, unfolding, which is a fine translation, but it's, uh, it's, the, it's just a common Hebrew word for open. You open a door. You open a window. And you might, you, you might use the word in this way sometimes, similar to what the psalmist is doing. You might hear a particularly powerful sermon or hear a, a lecture on the scriptures and you say, well, God's word was really opened for us today. And that's what the psalmist is saying. The, the opening of your words gives light. It's as if, you know, we're in a dark room and like, the curtains are closed and you can't see what's there. And all of a sudden those curtains are just ripped open. And now all of a sudden you see everything is clear. This is how God's word is. We, are a, we live in a dark world. We are ignorant people, but the opening of God's word, it gives light. It makes clear so much that is otherwise obscure and confusing. And this, I, this idea of imparting understanding to the simple. Uh, simple is not, if, 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 we talk up, if we say that someone is simple, uh, that's not really a compliment. Uh, you, if you've read the book of Proverbs, uh, you have, you meet several different kinds of people. You will meet the wise person, and you will meet the foolish person, but you also meet the simple person in Proverbs. And the simple person is the one who's not, he's not fully yet either the wise person or the foolish person. The simple person is usually a young person, someone who is immature, someone who is not yet, the, his course of life hasn't yet been determined. And here uh, the psalmist says that your word imparts understanding to that simple person, to the person who is still immature, still on the way. And in a sense, of course, all of us as Christians, we are always, in some sense, the simple as long as we're in this world. We're still on the way. There's always immaturity in us, uh, no matter how old we are or how long we've been in the faith. But God's word keeps giving us understanding as we seek to grow uh, from the simple to the wise. And as the psalmist puts these opening thoughts before us about how wonderful God's word is and the benefits it has for us, we meet the first of these passionate responses that the psalmist describes in verse 131. He says, I open my mouth and pant. Because I long for your commandments. The psalmist portrays himself as hungry for nourishment from this amazing word of God. He describes himself practically like an animal opening its mouth and panting because it's so hungry or so thirsty. Uh, as an animal needs sustenance, so we need sustenance. Uh, we need to be filled and satisfied by the word of God. If we are to grow from the simple to the wise, we need that nourishment. It's really remarkable uh, how often scripture uses this imagery of hungering or thirsting 
as a way to describe our growth in our faith. Uh, just earlier in Psalm 119, in fact, uh, in uh, verse 103, the psalmist said, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Uh, in Psalm 81, verse 10, the psalmist there says, Open wide your mouth. It's God speaking through the psalmist. Open wide your mouth, and I will fill it. And you might think of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, where Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Brothers and sisters, the Lord has made us the kind of creatures who remain fundamentally unsatisfied without the Lord, without fellowship with Him, without knowledge of Him. And as, as growing children long for food, you might think of a, as a teenage boy just can't get enough food. So we as believers... We should understand ourselves as those who cannot get enough of the word of God. You never get enough. We are never satisfied in this life. We, keep, we ought to keep panting for it, longing for it. For this is how the Lord provides uh, for us and makes us grow. Uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2, the apostle says, Like newborn infants... This is who we all are, the psalm, uh, Peter is saying. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you might grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And so, let us pray that the Lord would give us that holy longing for his word and for the nourishment that that word provides for us. Well, that brings us to the second of these passionate responses that the psalmist describes here. And we find this in verses 132 through 136, through the rest of uh, the first of the stanzas. Now, as we come to uh, verse 132 and continuing on through 135, so the next four verses, we find that each of these verses uh, is a mini prayer to the Lord. So this is something that uh, you might have noticed if you have read through Psalm 119. Uh, some of the verses contain a short statement, and some of the verses contain a short prayer. Uh, the first three verses that we looked at were short statements, and now the psalmist proceeds to four short prayers. Perhaps we can understand why. If the psalmist has just expressed how needy he is, right? He's, he's longing to be satisfied with God's word. It makes sense that he would then offer up these prayers to God, these requests. Needy people, well, those are the sort of people uh, who make requests and seek uh, the blessing of the Lord. So let's look briefly at these four mini prayers that the psalmist offers to God. The first, in verse 132, he says, Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. Now, in a way, this is it's just a, it's a very simple request that the psalmist puts before God. Turn to me and be gracious to me. It's simple, uh, but it's, it's profound. 
And do you note how the psalmist uh, describes this? He says, as is your way with those who love your name. Now, it might appear at first that this verse doesn't use a term for God's word. But in fact, the word that's translated way here is a word for God's word. Uh, it would ordinarily be translated rule, uh, or a, a rule of God, or a judgment of God. Um, actually, way here is a pretty nice way to put it. But you see what it's getting at. The psalmist is saying, turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your rule, as is your judgment for those who love you. I almost wonder if the word policy might be even better to translate way here. Lord, be gracious to me because that is your policy towards your people. That's a wonderful thing to contemplate, isn't it? God has his own rule of action towards his people. He has his own policy. And that policy to you is that he turns to you and he's gracious to you. That should be a great encouragement to us that God treats us in this way. And we might think of uh, Romans 8, verse 28, where Paul makes the famous statement, even, an even greater statement than this. He says that God works out all things for the good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. For those who love God, you can be assured that God is committed to doing good for you. The second of these many prayers is verse 133. The psalmist says, Keep steady my steps according to your promise, and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Now here the psalmist, in a way, turns inward. The psalmist is mindful of the fact that he's a sinner. He needs God's help. And so he asks that God would steady his steps, and that God would not let any iniquity or any sin lord it over him. And once again, if we look at the book of Romans, we can see how, uh, how God makes even better, uh, better promises to us under the new covenant. Uh, Paul, in a way, almost practically picks up this language. In Romans 6, he says that we are no longer under the law. In, what he means is that the law in Christ, the law no longer condemns us. We are forgiven, justified in Christ. And because of that, he says, sin will not have dominion over you. Sin will not lord it over you. It's precisely what the psalmist asks for here. And Paul says, that is a fact for you as a Christian. Doesn't mean you won't struggle with sin or that you won't fall into many sins. That remains true. But it, the Lord promises that for you who are in Christ, sin is no longer your master. It can no longer dominate you the way it once did when you were outside of Christ. It's wonderful to be able to pray things, knowing that God has promised that they are already true. So, the psalmist offers this prayer, and we offer that up as well. And then we turn to the third of these mini prayers. Verse 134, the psalmist says, Redeem me from man's oppression, that I may keep your precepts. So you see how the psalmist is being pretty comprehensive here. 
In the previous verse, he turns inside and he sees his own weaknesses. So he prays for help uh, from his own sin. Here in verse 134, it's as if he turns his attention outward. He has enemies. He has oppressors. As I mentioned earlier, uh, Psalm 119 is full of the psalmist contemplating his enemies. Actually, our two stanzas have relatively less of that than most of the stanzas. But here, these oppressors appear again. He needs help from God. He needs protection. And he's confident that God uh, will give it. And then finally, the fourth of these mini prayers, verse 135. The psalmist says, Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. Does that remind you of any other verse in the Old Testament? Uh, I don't know what uh, your pastor's uh, uh, practices are, but I imagine that sometimes they close your worship services with the so-called Aaronic blessing, the blessing uh, of Aaron in Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. The psalmist here is echoing that blessing, uh, although he is asking for the Lord now to give that to him. Make your face shine upon your servant. And as that is a wonderful way to end our worship services, it's a wonderful way for the psalmist to wrap up these series of short prayers. And as the psalmist does so, and as we come to the end of this stanza, we see in 136 that the psalmist now expresses the second of these strong emotions that he's setting before us in our text. And it may not be the emotion or the passion that we expect. The passion is sorrow. I mean, the psalmist has set before us these, these beautiful little prayers, and contained in these prayers are so many uh, wonderful promises that God gives. We might say, uh, wouldn't joy be a more appropriate response than sorrow? And yet the psalmist tells us why sorrow is actually a fitting response at this point. He says in verse 136, My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. He's full of sorrow because of disobedience to God. And it is most likely here that the psalmist is not referring just to people disobeying in general, but to God's own people rebelling against him. And you can see where, how the psalmist is thinking. Here, I mean, he has set before us in this stanza how wonderful God's word is, how much wisdom and understanding it brings for God's people. He has prayed to God, the God who promises uh, to not let sin overwhelm us, who has promised to make his face shine upon us, who has made it his policy to turn to us and be gracious to us. And what is the response? What had been the response of God's people? Rebellion. Despising God, ignoring God, worshiping false gods. How terrible, how tragic, how grievous. We can completely understand the psalmist's response. And it's an emotional response. This is not, the psalmist is not saying, my eyes got a, little, got a little watery. 
I mean, literally, he's saying that there are rivers of water flowing from my eyes when he contemplates the rebellion of God's people against a God who is so gracious and has been so generous to them. We can hear again something of the Apostle Paul in Romans. In Romans 9, 2, uh, Paul said that he had great sorrow and unceasing anguish when he thought about Israel, when he thought about his fellow countrymen, his fellow Jews who had been rebelling against God. It was tragic that the old covenant people were so rebellious against the Lord. And yet, it also makes us wonder, it should make us wonder and contemplate, isn't it so much more tragic when we, the new covenant people, rebel against God? When our churches teach what is untrue? When we, the people of God, don't love each other? When we bite and devour each other instead, as Paul put it in Galatians? It is so easy for us not to take our sin seriously. We rationalize our sin. We justify our sin. But the psalmist reminds us here that sin is sorrowful. It is grievous. Now, we are called to be a joyful people. That is so clear in the New Testament. And yet, there is also a place for holy sorrow when we think about our own sin. Honestly. And when we think about the sins, not only of our own congregations, but of the church of Christ worldwide. Let us pray that the Lord would give us a godly sorrow in the face of sin. And yet, it's not just any kind of sorrow. But as Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, we as God's people should have a sorrow, a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Not a sorrow that leaves us in misery, but a sorrow that provokes us to turn away from our sin and to seek God's mercy again. That is a sorrow that is compatible with the joy to which we are called in Christ. And with that, we turn to the third and final of these three passionate responses, which we find in the second of our stanzas, the Tzadi stanza. Uh, don't worry, we will look at the stanza in shorter fashion than the first stanza. Uh, but uh, there are still some important things to note here. Uh, and uh, first thing to note about this stanza as a whole is that it's full of the words righteous and righteousness which you may have noted as I read it earlier. And there's a very easy reason uh, to, uh, for this, a very simple reason for this. All right, so this is the word, uh, the, 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 the Tzadi stanza. Uh, tzadi is one of these Hebrew letters. And the way this psalm works is for this stanza, the first letter of every verse in the original Hebrew begins with the letter Tzadi. And so this psalmist, who is a very talented poet, he takes advantage of the fact that one of the common Hebrew words that began with tzadi is righteous, as well as righteousness. And so he fills this stanza with these words. You see it right off the bat. 
verses 137 and 138 speak about how the Lord himself is righteous, how his word, his rules are righteous, um, and uh, how his works uh, are uh, righteous. And so we uh, have this set before us. And righteousness, in a way, simply means it is... uh, Things are in conformity to what is good. Things are in conformity to uh, an upright standard. And with God and with his word and with all his actions, everything is perfectly upright. There is nothing unrighteous in God. That's what the psalmist sets before us in the first two verses of this stanza. But then in verse 139, the third verse of this stanza we find the third and last of these passions or emotions. He says, my zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. God's righteousness provokes a godly zeal in this psalmist. Now, what is zeal? Well, zeal is a... Zeal is when something has our attention when it has our focused, when we are aroused and focused towards some cause. Zeal can be for a good cause, it can be for a bad cause. Uh, But the psalmist here has a zeal in response to the righteousness of God, and specifically because his foes, his enemies, are not obeying God's law. They are forgetting his words. You might think of it this way. God and his word is perfectly righteous, and yet this world is full of unrighteousness. There is just this this terrible tension, right? This terrible anomaly in this world made and governed by a perfectly righteous God and yet so full of unrighteousness. And the psalmist is aroused to zeal when he contemplates this. Well, one thing that we note in the scriptures is that God himself describes himself as a God of zeal. Uh, The prophet Isaiah loved uh, this term. He ascribed it to God in a number of uh, places in his prophecy. And he says numerous times that God is zealous for delivering his people from their troubles. Here's another thing that should be of great encouragement to us. God is zealous for you, his people. He is zealous for your salvation. Uh, Another time when Isaiah mentions this is a a, a rather famous prophecy in Isaiah 9, where uh, the, the, the prophet speaks of this coming Messiah who is wonderful, counselor, um, everlasting father, mighty God, prince of peace. And after putting that before us, uh, Isaiah says, the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. The zeal of God, the zeal of the Lord of hosts would send his Messiah and deliver his people. And so perhaps no surprise that in John chapter 2, as uh, the disciples saw Jesus in the temple, they remembered What was prophesied about him in Psalm 69, zeal for your house will consume me. 
Not only was God zealous to send his Messiah to save his people, but our Messiah, the Lord Jesus, was zealous to accomplish the work that God set before him. Well, the psalmist reminds us that we as God's people should have a zeal that reflects the zeal of our God. We should have a zeal for God's righteousness and for the salvation that God's righteousness brings. And we, under the new covenant, we have seen God's righteousness so much more greatly displayed than even the psalmist could of old. You might think of, again, the book of Romans after the first couple of chapters when Paul sets before us, again, the sinfulness of this world and the impossibility of salvation by anything we can do. Paul says in Romans 3.21, but now a righteousness from God has been revealed. Righteousness from God has been revealed. What is he talking about? He's talking about the revelation of Christ, our Messiah, who not only was perfectly righteous himself, but his righteous conduct, his righteous obedient, as he will explain in the next couple of chapters, Paul will explain, that righteousness is credited to us so that we are reckoned righteous before God. Brothers and sisters, you have been justified. You've been made right by the righteousness of God in Christ. How can we be zealous for God's righteousness then? Well, believe the gospel and support the proclamation of that gospel in whatever way you can. Support it. Pray for it. Because as the gospel goes forward, the righteousness of God is advanced and the unrighteousness of this world is pushed back. And indeed, we can be zealous for God's righteousness by looking forward to the second coming when God will surely make all things right finally and perfectly in this world. Well, we can't look in detail at the final verses of this stanza, but I would simply point you to the fact that the psalmist revisits the idea of God's righteousness uh, in these uh, concluding verses. He uh, reemphasizes that uh, God is righteous and his word is righteous, and yet he also recognizes his own weakness. In verse 143, the second to last verse, he says, trouble and anguish have found me out. In the last verse, 144, he asks again for understanding that he might live. And it is a reminder that when we think of righteousness and we think of the zeal that ought to flow from the fact that this world is so full of unrighteousness, that it is God's righteousness and God's zeal for it that is ultimately going to accomplish God's purposes. We are weak. Let us pray. Let us pray that the Lord would give us a godly zeal for his gospel and for all God's purposes to be accomplished. And yet let us also remember that it is God and his word that are perfectly righteous, not us. So let us trust in him to make all things right. Let's pray. O oh Lord, 
Our Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you for this uh, beautiful part of your word. This part of your word which tells us so much about your word. And Lord, uh, as we are confronted with your word, uh, we are convicted by the fact that we are so often, we can be so indifferent to your word. We can, we can read your word and our mind can be elsewhere. We can hear your word preached and we can think about other things. Father, uh, how glorious is your word, how wonderful it is, how much light and nourishment and encouragement and comfort it brings to us. Father, we pray that we would not be indifferent spectators toward your word. Make us, O oh Lord, make us those who respond as we ought to. O oh Lord, by your spirit, sanctify us to this end. Give us a holy longing for the nourishment of your word. Give us a holy sorrow for our own sins and for the sins of your people. And give us the holy zeal for the righteous word and the righteous salvation that you bring, O Lord. Father, forgive us for our many failures in this. And yet we are confident, O Lord, that you would indeed make us a people who are devoted to you not only in our thoughts, not only in our words, not only with the works of our hands, but even in those very feelings and passions that we experience every day. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.